we serve a primitive drive. Cause watching people die can make you feel so alive. Radio Drone. It's October, so we're going to be talking about horror. But what kind of horror? That's what we'll be talking about. What are you going to be talking about? I said horror. What kind of horror? That's what we're going to be talking about. Shut up! I'm Josh Hadley, arguing with myself. With me is Peter. Okay. And Cecil. <laughs> I'm, I'm lost in the woods. All I'm asking for you is when you're running from the killer, don't look back and trip because you know you're going to do it. I'll probably trip without even looking back. That's true. <laughs> if you guys want to know what true horror is, you should check out some of the stuff at adamandeve.com. There's no way your ass can accommodate some of those toys. But if you want to try, you go and you use the promo code DROME and you would get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You would get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping. As long as you put your horrendous videos up on PornTube, X Hamster if you're low class, and send it to me, I want to know if you use the promo code DROME. Actually, no, I don't. Actually, yes, I do. Part of me wants to know. Tonight, what we're going to talk about is horror. It, it's October, so everybody's, you know, geared up for Halloween, and they're like, I don't, I don't get these, like, horror movie marathons. Okay, why just in October? Horror movies are good all year round. But what kind of horror movie do you like? I mean, because there are so many subgenres, and I'm not talking about zombie, vampire, that, that type of subgenre. I mean, the more visceral, slasher kind of stuff, you've got the slow, atmospheric buildup, you've got the gothic stuff, you have the stuff where it's, like, real-world horrors. What kind of horror are you drawn to more than any other? Because I know we're all horror fans in general, but what kind draws you in the most? Kind of a combination of, I mean, it depends on how I'm feeling, like what my mood is. Like sometimes I just want to watch a slasher movie and kind of sit back and be entertained. A lot of times that's what you get. You know, you tune in, you're like, all right, I'm going to watch a slasher movie. So, you know, you're going to get a bunch of quote unquote teens that are, you know, that are happen to be in their 20s, late 20s that are getting naked and getting killed by a masked individual or masked individuals. Then there are times where I really want to sit down and turn my brain on. I want to watch something atmospheric. I want to watch something that really makes you think and keeps you immersed in what you're watching. So those are kind of my two go-tos depending on my mood. Either simplistic slasher with lots of tits and killing and then the smarter, more atmospheric ones. I think I gravitate mostly toward slashers. I mean, I've been a fan of the Friday the 13th films and still am since I was like 11 or 12 years old. Uh, I always go back and rewatch a lot of them throughout the year. Like for me, yeah, it's not just an October thing. I'm watching these movies all year throughout. Throughout, uh, I'll go back and rewatch, you know, Final Chapter or Part 3 or Jason Lives. Uh, same with the Nightmare on Elm Street stuff, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff, the Halloween stuff. So definitely mostly slashers. I really, there's just something about the slasher movies that I really find uh, fun. The characters are usually pretty enjoyable. You know, the death scenes are over the top. The music is cool. And I also like, uh, like my second go-to would probably be like atmospheric, um, supernatural horrors, mainly of the Argento variety. Like I love Inferno. I love Suspiria. I love that whole like neon lit atmosphere and the music by Goblin. So me, it's like 70s and 80s supernatural stuff and like mostly 80s Flashers. That's the that's the kind of stuff that I usually get into. So then let me ask you this. Why do you like slasher movies? We all do. I mean, all three of us are big, you know, slasher genre fans. What is it about a slasher that draws you? If if you listen to Siskel and Ebert, you're you're a misogynist who hates women if you're drawn to slasher movies. You are a feminist, then you are a misogynist who hates women that is drawn to slasher movies. If you're a guy, well, you like to see people get killed, which is kind of a shallow, which is kind of a shallow way to look at things. Why are you drawn to them? Because I can say for me, I hate to say it because a lot of slashers are kind of shallow, but you kind of get into the story if it's done right. 
You know, you get into the characters. Mm. Yeah, it's done wrong a lot. Like The Burning, that is a terrible movie. I know you both disagree with I Highly hate, disagree. And, and that's yes. fine. I hated the story. I hated the characters. I just wanted this movie. I just wanted Cropsey to kill the last person so the movie would be over. On the other hand, look at something like Friday the 13th Part 6. I think that kills two stones with one bird. It's incredibly atmospheric, which you have to admit the others really aren't. And it's it's a slasher movie. So mm-hmm. what draws you to the slasher genre? Me, I, I got to go with like what you said. I think they're, they're, they tend to be fun. There are mean ones. There are vicious yeah. ones. Ms. 45, which I do consider kind of a slasher movie, that, that's a mean, vicious slasher movie. I Spit on Your Grave Absolutely. is not a I Spit on Your Grave is not a fun slasher movie. That is a mean slasher movie. Same with like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff like that. There are some really fucking gritty, mean ones out there. Like I I agree that um, when the story's done right, it's really great, and especially when it comes to the the whole Voorhees mythos. Um, I love the the, amb- the ambiguity of it is pretty great, especially in uh, entries like part two, where you have actually characters you know sitting around in a bar and kind of discussing what Jason is. Is he a frightened retard? Is he a child trapped in a man's body? Uh, did he did he see his mother get killed and all this stuff? And it's got this this great backstory of a of a mother who when it all came down to it it's vengeance for her child that that died through negligence and she she gets that revenge she just wants the camp to to remain closed she dies and Jason picks up after her and the only reason why he keeps coming back is because people keep coming to his grounds they keep reopening the camp he obviously takes it to the extreme um but it's a, I find it to be a really interesting story an interesting character um everything that's built around it you know the 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 cast uh, usually the actors are a lot of fun, especially in movies like uh, like to me, the best ones are like Final Chapter, Jason Lives. I really like part two. Three is just a lot of fun, just very colorful characters in that one. So I think there's it, it, they bring a lot to the table. And I love the the way that the story can be translatable in, in different ways and that it's not always set in stone. And you, you never actually know whether Jason died when he drowned or whether he witnessed his mother get killed. Like there's a lot of different takes that can be done with it. And I think that's why the series was able to go on as long as it did. And I really agree with part six. That's one of the ones that were very atmospheric and the characters were fun at the same time. And it was still a real horror movie. Same with I think probably the uh, like in terms of atmosphere to me the best ones are that one and and final chapter but yeah I really just all the different elements the fact that it imp- they, these movies empower women so much like you've always got the you've usually always got the final girl same with the whole mythos of the Nightmare on Elm Street films you know with with this child molester who's burned alive and comes back as a dream demon and then Halloween where you've got this man who is literally evil incarnate coming back to to murder his whole family and anybody else in his way like that's that's some horrifying and you've got you know your great uh, great character performances by Donald Pleasance and and Jamie Lee Curtis. So I think the slasher genre has, has so much to to offer, and a lot of people pass it off as garbage, and and I don't think that's very fair. Um, the slashers have always been just enjoyable to me. Uh, I think probably because um, when I was younger, one of the first horror movies I ever saw was A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three, and it kind of stuck with me and it's it's always kind of just been i guess like a like a like a comfort blanket you know it's like oh you back here and uh, you have your characters that you're familiar with you have your final girl while a lot of them do follow similar story structures they each have these really colorful interesting villains and lots of different characters like they're not just i mean there are a lot of slashers out there. So, of course, a lot of them are following just archetypes. You know, you've got you got the jock, you've got the uh, the slut, you got this, you got that, the other thing. But there are a lot of them where the characters really aren't this stock generic type. And even if they do fall into a certain stereotype, there's something about them that you like. You know, you don't want to necessarily see them die. And I mm-hmm. think that was one of the problems that kind of came up with the 90s was that slashers became so cynical that it was like people stopped rooting for the people to survive and they started rooting for the killers. Cecil, you and I talked about that when we did the Children of the Corn retrospective. Remember the, the one with Eva Mendez? We couldn't wait for those annoying ass characters to die. Yeah, we wanted them <laughs> to die because they were horrible. And that was the thing, like even even the most annoying Friday the 13th character usually you didn't want them to die like I, I and even though I like 
like like Jason and, and Freddy and all them, you didn't really want these people to get killed. So you, you kind of uh, were, were rooting for them to make it. Like I was just watching a movie the other night, which surprised the hell out of me. Um, the remake, well, it was really more of a remake in name only of uh, Sorority Row. It was much better than I thought it was going to be. And there was hmm. one girl in there I genuinely liked. And when she got killed, she got killed really early. And I was annoyed because I was like, man, she was she's like the best character in this whole movie. And they just completely <laughs> she was the best and most interesting character in the whole movie. And they offed her like right out of the gate. And that kind of pissed me off because this really sucked, you know. So uh, I think that's you know, a good slasher will make you empathize with the uh with the victims and not just make you mm-hmm. root for the killer when it comes to slashers i think i think the great joe bob briggs summed it up perfectly watching people die makes you feel so alive and he's he's, he's right there's something about slasher movies in particular you do get kind of a visceral you do get kind of a visceral thrill now on the other hand look at look at the slower which you don't get nowadays very much but the slower burn atmospheric movies look at something like like john carpenter's the fog think about the first hour of that movie there's about 20 minutes of things that actually happen the rest of it is all mood and atmosphere getting to the point where it's almost oppressive by the time the damn leper zombie pirates actually show up you're you're prime so you've got stuff like that or the exorcist that whole movie is mood because yeah. really nothing happens till the last. I mean, you know, you get a couple of little incidents. The last half hours where everything happens. Yeah. It's all mood and build up. People might let you guys might laugh at me for this. The last 20 minutes of the legend of Boggy Creek. The fact that that movie is a pseudo documentary until they get to the reenactment at the end where where all of a sudden that Jennifer Conley looking chick is getting attacked and the guy in the bathroom get, gets attacked while wiping his ass. That is a genuinely creepy ass scene, isn't it? But the way yeah. it's shot and and just how the Falk monster sounds and the way they've built it up with the rest of the movie being a pseudo documentary. That's what I like. I like when the mood is so oppressive when something happens. It gets you. Perfect example is Alien. Nothing happens in that movie until 48 minutes in. You're never bored, and you are always on the edge of your seat, not not sure what's about to happen next. That is a finely crafted atmospheric movie. I know um, that was one of the things that bothered me with uh, The Blair Witch Project. I think that The Blair Witch Project was genuinely atmospheric and creepy, and you were like... I didn't want these kids to die. And then you had all these people. I oh, did because God. they were annoying kids. Uh, I guess it's kind of like, like I said, with the, when I was talking about the Green Inferno video, I'm like, I guess I just maybe maybe in Philadelphia, I just know a lot of assholes. They were and actually Heather Donahue used to roommate with a friend of mine. So I never met her, but knew her by proxy. I hmm. knew people like that. You had all these people that are like, oh, I couldn't wait for them to die. Oh, nothing happens until the end of the movie. Oh, everybody's angry. I, I call you know BS on that because I was there opening night and there were a lot of people that were freaked the hell out by the movie. And it's it's mm-hmm. that retroactive, I want everybody to die. And it's like, eh. The movie wouldn't have made three hundred million dollars and you know been touted as one of the scariest movies ever if you know everybody saw it opening weekend and said that it sucked. I have to, I, but it did suck. The sequel was far better, and the sequel was very atmospheric. The sequel, in its correct order, was even very even the theatric no even the theatric <laughs> even the theatrical cut is extremely atmospheric. With I know the Marilyn Manson song wasn't wasn't the original song but even with that hand during that song over all the dead trees and all of the the orange forest and whatnot it sets a mood right off the bat it just mm-hmm. works better when it's it's told in the order that it's supposed to be told it's one of those movies where now that i have correct version you can't go back to the the theatrical cut i love a uh, slow burn horror and i think it's a uh not something that we get nearly as often as we we used to. Uh, The Exorcist is a prime example of that. I love John Carpenter's Fog. That's one that uh, I'm surprised to this day that even people who know about John Carpenter haven't seen it yet. And I always always try to introduce it to as many people as I can because it's uh, it's a great blend of that like old school supernatural. It, It really does have that oppressive feeling to it. So when the 
you know, the pirate zombies show up and start killing people. It gets just all that much scarier. Halloween is another really good slow burn for a slasher film as well. Really well done. Really, uh, really stands the test of time. And some ones that, that have come out recently that I've really enjoyed when it comes to the whole slow burn thing. Uh, the Australian flick, Baba Duke, was really good. Uh, it Follows was awesome. Capt- really captured that vibe of that slow, that slow but not boring. Like you're you're still captivated and on the edge of your seat. Like much like you said about Alien, there isn't a boring moment in that film. You're being immersed into the lives of these characters, and then this horrific shit happens, and it's just even worse. Um, and I think movies like Baba Duke and It Follows, and I'm sure a few others that I haven't quite, uh, that I just that aren't at the top of my head right now. But uh, I'm glad that they've come out, and I really would like to see more because I I like having the option to not only watch you know some some fun violent cool slasher movies that have elements of, of scary stuff to them as well but i really love the whole the, the slow burn style because that to me, those to me are the scariest ones those are the ones that really you know get your heart rate going and and some of them when they're done right it, it can feel like a like an adrenaline rush like um like the, the the first time I watched, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like like I wasn't able to sit still at the end of that one. Like I was genuinely freaked out. And even to this day watching it, like it's it's so effective in the way that it's built up and the most intense stuff happens at the end and that, that whole dinner scene. That's some that's an element we, we need to to start uh, that I think the film industry that's everybody that's making horror movies. I really would like to see more stuff like that, just with how good Baba Duke and, and it follows work is uh, I really do love that kind of stuff. What about when a movie specifically a horror movie, although in the case I'm going to bring up, it's, it's really more classified as a thriller, but I do consider it a horror movie. What about when they use real world horrors as a way to just, I mean, in, in a movie that's almost humorless, and I'll get to the humor thing down the line, a movie like Seven, once it starts, it really never lets up. Yes, there are slow moments, but that movie is always chugging along to the end. There are no pointless scenes in that movie, but the real-world horror of that movie is so brutal, humor would be misplaced in it. And mm-hmm. the atmosphere is so thick in Seven that by the time the box scene happens, you're ready for anything. Ms. 45, or I spit on your grave before. Those are ones rooted in the real world. I'm talking about stuff that has nothing supernatural, no dream powers, no aliens, no giant monsters from the deep, no incantations. That is like a real ser- – Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is one of the hardest movies to ever sit through. Why? It is yep. so realistic. There are two scenes. The scene where Otis is raping his, his own sister, the videotape scene. Yeah. Those scenes are some of the – I've seen real murders on television that I have an easier time sitting through than those scenes in a fictional movie. That is either amazing mm-hmm. filmmaking or really terrible filmmaking. Yeah, it uh, it definitely is is more effective if it's uh, – I mean I <laughs> – I don't like, this is going into Supernatural, I don't like ghost movies because ghosts freak me out. I don't like bug movies because bugs creep me out. However, uh, there is something to movies that are something that could happen in reality, like like cannibal movies. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to run into a cannibal. However... If I was flying somewhere, you know, over Peru and my plane crashed and I got taken in by by a village and they're eating people. I mean, that you know, not saying that the people in Peru are, are, are savages, but if something like that happened and I mean, that's horrifying because you're you're sitting there and you're you're waiting and like it's one thing to wait to die. It's another thing to wait to know that you're going to be someone's dinner. That just like changes the whole dynamic of it. It makes it like even though you're going to be dead either way, it somehow makes it worse. What about something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer when that movie illustrates just how random of a victim you can be? Yeah, it's it's scary because, you know, it's there's no rhyme or reason. You uh, you're not fitting a, uh, a certain profile. You're just uh, you just happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and end up becoming a victim. And uh, yeah, it's it's scary. I consider the sort of uh, true crime, real life horror movies to be sort of the intense, I guess the intense offshoot of uh, slashers. Like it's sort of the similar territory. You've, you know, you've got serial killers, you've got people being, you know, brutally murdered. But there's, yeah, like you said, there's this um, lack of comedy uh, to movies like, like, like 
comedy would be uh, it would be very misplaced and just not fit and just um, because that's what it's that's what it's playing off of is that that grim atmosphere and just you're 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 expecting anything to happen at that point by the end you know with the box and everything and and Henry uh, Portrait of a Serial Killer that's just one of those movies that you can't even watch with another person like that's just a movie you watch by yourself because it's it's not like a group view, viewing movie it's one of those movies that you you watch and it makes life feel all that more precious just as uh you know as you said it, what it what it would be like to just be a completely random victim and how horrifying that videotape scene is and everything uh and even a, a more recent movie which i consider to be the henry of the 2000s which is an australian flick called the snowtown murders i know it. i've heard a lot of people saying that i should watch it so i really it's should re- watch it it's really really intense um it has that same vibe that uh that Henry has just that very bleak, uncomfortable to sit through. But uh, and and what you said about the the thing about Henry, whether that makes it a good movie or a really bad movie, it makes it a really good movie because it's it's a horror movie that sets out to be horrific and absolutely is everything that it that it tries to do. It hits directly on the head, and uh, that's exactly what movies like Seven did. That's what movies like the, the Snowtown Murders did. A lot of the serial killer biopics, some of them are kind of dumb, like the Curl Crew, Secret Life of Jeffrey Dahmer. But I mean, every genre and subgenre has its uh, shitty entries. But but yeah, I mean, those are um, those ones I can't really watch too often. But when I do, it they really do remind me how how scary uh, life can be. I guess. Well, then what what about the other direction? The stuff that is not realistic and is all about like that that gothic atmosphere and mood, like like an Argento film or a Hammer film. Like you look at any of the Hammer Dracula films, they're not realistic at all, but they do have a certain feel to them that makes them special, at least to me. You can look at other movies from that era that are not Hammer, and for some reason you go, this really feels like a Hammer film, like Horror Express from 1972. You go, wow, this feels like it was a Hammer film. When in fact it was a Spanish production, not British, and it had nothing to do with Hammer. Do you think sometimes the style, even if the story's unrealistic, can still pull you in? Like a Hammer film, it's not realistic. You still really get into the atmosphere, don't you? The old Hammer films, they really, they knew how to nail atmosphere. Uh, I think a large part of it was because of like real set and classically trained actors, a nice amount of uh, of blood and guts, but not like, you know, not overboard into like heavy gore territory. I mean, it is funny to me that Dracula's Risen from the Grave is rated G when <laughs> it's fairly bloody, but um uh that adds a lot into it and the lighting and they just put a lot of effort into it. It seems like now we get so many horror movies where uh, it's it's a lot of just green screen work, it's CGI blood, it's fake stuff, it's actresses who can't act. They they try to give it this air of being scary, and it's not. Uh, it just it comes up like it comes up entertaining, and I'll watch a lot of them, but they're the furthest thing from genuinely scary. Well, I mean, what I said earlier about the whole seventies, uh, uh, late seventies, early eighties supernatural stuff like the argento stuff and of course the the hammer stuff falls into that i love how stylish it is i love the lighting the mood they're movies that you almost don't even need to pay attention to the dialogue they're just great to watch the the way the shots are lined up the way everything looks like very larger than life but at the same time very gothic lots of shadow you know great usage of color uh great usage of music and mood which is why i i love um you know, generally, I guess stuff from the from the overseas, like the Italian stuff, even some of the Japanese stuff. They they really know how to how to make stuff just look kick ass on on the camera. And there are some genuinely frightening moments and just un unsettling uh, visuals. Some of the some of the stories can be a uh, a little weird and possibly hard to follow or just wacky. Like like Suspiria, if you really crack open and, and dissect it, it can be a little silly. But just the the execution of the way Argento does it compared to a way a lot of American filmmakers would handle the same topic of, you know, uh, a coven of witches and whatnot. Rob Zombie basically did a very similar version of Inferno in uh, in his version of what was it? Um, Damn it. Uh, Lords of Salem was uh, Inferno-esque and even a bit Suspiria-esque with the whole witches 
uh, coven thing. But the silliness of the concept really bleeds through when you don't have that cool Italian atmosphere of the gothic and the really perfect usage of neon colors and, and cool synthy music. Well, when it, when it comes to that, like, Peter, something you said, how the plots are somewhat hard to follow and whatnot, Fulci's The Beyond is one of the most beautiful horror films of the 1980s. I defy you to try and make a f***ing lick of sense about that movie, though. <laughs> it's, but it, it doesn't make a difference, does it? You can just sit and watch it, and you just accept that, okay, this stupid thing is happening, so this stupid thing can happen, and it's gorgeous. The lighting, the mm-hmm. editing when a filmmaker doesn't have a consistent style like that. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, look at Argento. You brought up Suspiria. That's a gorgeous movie. But then look at look at Creeper's Phenomena. That movie's shot, intentionally so, like a music video. And that's the way it's lit. You tell me when she's doing the I love you, I love all of you scene, and her hair is flying up, you don't expect Bonnie Taylor's Total Eclipse of the Heart to be playing in the background. That whole movie is shot like a music video. And that's not an insult to the movie. But you wouldn't really think of Argento when you think of that, would you? The mood still bleeds through. And again, it's an Argento movie. It doesn't really make any sense if you think about it. I still love the film, though. Hmm. There are are a few movies that are just beautiful movies. It's not so much that they don't make sense. It's that maybe they don't make a lot of sense the first time through. Only God Forgives is hypnotic. Like you're, mm-hmm. you feel like you're in some sort of lucid dream while you're watching it because it there's slow motion moments and it's color and it's a lot of stuff that like you're kind of like, all right, I'm not entirely sure what's going on. But and then like then once you make it through and you really sit down and think about it, then you watch it again. You're like, oh, all right, I get it now. There are some movies that are just artistically beautiful first. And I dig those movies because they they really keep you, they keep you entranced and they keep you occupied and they make you think a lot. And then uh, you come back and watch it again for it to, to kind of fill in the blanks that maybe you didn't pull through the first time. Uh, so, I mean, I am not against a movie that you have to watch a couple times to really take it all in. I mean, sure, there are some movies that you want to watch, you want to get in, you want to get the whole story and you want to get out. Those are the ones that you end up only watching once. I like the ones yeah. where you have to keep coming back to them or something that you might see and then you come back to a while later and you watch it again. A movie that unfortunately, uh, because of some studio meddling, ended up being a little more uh, a little more mainstream than it should have been, uh, but still was a beautiful movie, was the remake of Black Christmas. That movie, like regardless of your feelings on the movie, had some of the best use of color in a more mm. modern film that I've seen. I mean, the way that they used the the you know where it was dark and they used the Christmas lights to light things up, the way that they splashed the the blood red on on the white snow, the way that they would use like the the warmth of like the um the fireplace to light the one main room. It was a beautiful movie. So I mean, and a lot of people automatically just discredit it because they don't like it. Color plays a larger role than I think a lot of people realize. Joe Dante talks on the commentary of on The Howling how there are two types of color movies. There are color movies and movies that happen to be in color. He said he makes color movies. Look at The Howling. Look at how many filtered lights. He even admits on the commentary, there's no logical reason why there should be blue light coming from under that table, but it really sets the scene, doesn't it? Yeah, that's why I get depressed now because we have so many movies that are just overly color corrected and it, it just all right, you know, this this looks like a product. This doesn't look like something that somebody nurtured and made. You know, it's just like, oh well, uh this is a horror movie, so we have to use uh the the uh red giant color correction gray on it. Okay, this is an action movie, so we have to use the uh red giant color correction God, I forget. Orange uh, what, and teal. Or, well orange yeah. and teal, but they have a certain name for it that uh, shows I've been away from the office for a while. What about when the atmosphere in a movie, now this isn't a horror movie in any way, but when the atmosphere is so immersive, it actually covers for how, let's face it, how bland the story in Blade Runner is. Blade Runner is a fully realized world that you're dropped in, but let's face it, the plot is kind of a generic 30s film noir story. The plot is almost incidental to Blade Runner. You watch Blade Runner for the immersive atmosphere and the world it drops you in. 
The story's mm -hmm. completely inconsequential. It just happens to be an average, uh, maybe a slightly above average story. Yeah, I agree with that. That's um, It is kind of just uh, like a detective story with androids, uh, but that world created for it and the just gorgeous lighting and the score and, and everything, the... It's it's one of those movies, much like a Fulci flick, much like an Argento flick. It doesn't matter if the plot can be a little silly or hard to follow or overly simplistic. You can just plop down on the couch, put it on and watch it and be completely immersed into what you're seeing because what you're seeing is just absolutely beautiful. It is a sci-fi film noir, but it's so it really set the template, which a lot of things followed. I mean, there really wasn't I mean, yeah, there were film noirs before that, obviously, but there wasn't that kind of uh, combination of atmosphere and uh, futuristic stuff. I mean, if you look at Blade Runner now, I mean, even if you don't look at it from a um, from a time perspective, it's still it holds up because the practical effects are still good. The story is good. I mean, there are a lot of people that still don't really know how to follow it. It's a movie that if it was released today, they that's why I'm kind of worried about Blade Runner 2. It's not going to be as groundbreaking as the original, and it's going to end up probably be a more a little bit more of what you would expect. It's going to be a little bit more hacky and uh, probably a lot of uh, a lot of CGI instead of practicals. I have a feeling and, I have a feeling Blade Runner 2 is going to look more like the Total Recall remake than Blade Runner. I don't yes. know why, but that's the feeling I've got, you know? I have a feeling they're going to they're gonna overcompensate with things. They're going to put in, like, whereas Blade Runner, you know, you had the you had the car, the flying cars, kind of, but they were, they were very few and far between. Whereas in uh, the Total Recall remake, there were flying cars everywhere and everything was all glossy and shiny and fake looking. And they're going to probably do that with the, the, I really hope the Blade Runner 2 doesn't happen. It just, it doesn't need to, especially at this point, it just doesn't need to happen. Like I brought up how a movie, a movie like Seven. I mean, yes, there are little bits of, of humor in Seven, like like when he's joking about whether he's uh, shaving, whether if he shaves his nipple off, he gets workman's compensation or whatnot. But when ready for the but, but th those are just quick little things. Those are human moments, not humor. Yeah, it's the difference between humor and comedic relief. What I'm saying is, what about when a when a horror movie? Because you get this especially from the 90s on, even before Scream. You can't blame Scream for this one. You almost have to have a comedic character. You almost have to have characters making quips and whatnot. Does that diminish the horror element? I mean, like if you were if you were watching The Exorcist and all of a sudden Father Marin made a smart-ass remark to your mother sucks cocks in hell, would that not completely destroy the scene? But that's how they would make it today. I think when it comes to the whole comedic relief thing, that's something that, uh, in my opinion, belongs more in in a slasher movie, um, and it's there to sort of to create levity. You laugh a little bit, and then the movie will hit you with something gruesome. Um, but with a movie like Exorcist, where it's it's just got this thick coating of of its intensity and brooding and, and everything. And it's, it just doesn't, it wouldn't fit to have a, a wise cracking uh, priest. I mean, I'm sure you can make a movie like that where it's like sort of a supernatural exorcism film done as more of like a horror comedy kind of thing. But in, in the exorcist itself and, and yeah, you're right. If they, if they remade it or made a version of it today, they would force that in and then try to be edgy or whatever. I think it belongs in certain places. And I agree with that, that the moments of humanity in, in seven, the those like just the things you would say to a to a co-worker and there's a difference between that and comedic relief like one of the goofy characters in a, in a friday the 13th film say like uh like the fat kid shelly who runs like a girl to the volkswagen or, or just characters like that and there's a difference and they belong in certain movies and they don't belong in, in certain movies like like a character like that doesn't belong in a movie like say seven or henry or especially the exorcist but in a slasher movie in a, in a friday the 13th a nightmare on elm street a halloween um th they're a pretty good fit there I'm going to kind of go back on my own argument here for a second. I do think that can work, but there are very few writers and writer-directors who can make genuine humor in an in a very atmospheric movie work. Tom Laughlin in Friday the 13th Part 6, because the humor is never overstated. It's always under the surface. It's always subtle. It's always underplayed. He never has a haw-haw joke in that whole movie, but it's yeah. filled with humor. So is same with Return of the Living Dead with Dan O'Bannon, mm -hmm. another great writer. Or with The Exorcist, Exorcist 3, William Peter Blatty 
is such an amazing writer. You've got those whole speeches, which are intentionally comical between the between the two main characters, and yet that that only makes when the horrific stuff happens it that much more horrific. You have to have a very delicate hand to balance horror and comedy. And I think you've got to be a Tom Laughlin, a Dan O'Bannon, or a William Peter Blatty, because most of that doesn't work. I'm, I know you guys mm. liked the movie, but Kevin Williamson does not know how to balance that. A lot of these modern directors, they don't know how to balance humor and horror. Uh, I listen to a lot of directors' commentaries, and it's always disheartening because you'll get a, uh, somebody talking about the movie, and they'll talk about their justification for throwing in some comedic relief. And they're like, well, this this scene was it was just so intense, and we, we wanted to give the audience some relief. So we just had to throw something in there. Or in the case of uh, something like Sinister, the ending, you know, major spoiler, the ending of the movie, there's a boo scare and they the director, you know, ended it on this law lo- originally ended it on this long shot zooming in on the uh, the box of uh, on the box of film. And then it just, you know, faded. And that was great because it was like, holy, you know, holy, the, you know, this just means that, uh, you know, Bagul exists. Out, you know, he's going to continue. And that would have been the perfect out. But instead, the studio is like, well, you know, we, we can't have this horrific, you know, you know, this daughter just completely murdered her family. And we can't just end it there. We need to give the audience some relief. So they threw in the boo scare. And then it just kind of undoes all of that tension and dr- like, it's like, Oh my God, I can't believe this just happened. Oh, the boo scare. It's okay. You know, it just, it completely deflates all of that tension that it builds up. And I just can't stand when a lot of movies now, they just feel this need to throw in stuff to cut the tension. It's you don't need. You spent the it, whole movie building that tension. Yeah. If, if the movie is a comedy drama or I'm sorry, a comedy horror film, fine. You know, you've got your humor mixed in. And if there are those human moments where stuff happens and it's funny, great. But when you're intentionally putting in nonsense to cut the tension because it's too much for people, well, then you end up just destroying it. I think we were talking about it. It's not a horror movie with the end of seven. They didn't want what was in the box to be in the box the studio was fighting them over this and it's like don't you understand this is what we've been leading up to and it's the same thing with like put injecting things that don't need to be in movies taking things out that are supposed to be in there it's it's infuriating and it's ruined a lot of movies where they'll put something in they'll put uh, or take something out that doesn't you know that should be there or put something in that doesn't belong there or put humor in where it doesn't belong it's really annoying, and it's rarely the director who wants to put it in or take it out. Well, but then you also have, when you've got, to me there's a difference between a filmmaker and a director. A director is a director. A filmmaker is a manipulator. He's manipulating you as the audience, and he's using atmosphere, and what a lot of people don't realize is he's using the camera to tell you how you're supposed to feel. Let's go back to Seven. David Fincher is such an amazing filmmaker on his, you know, it's his first real movie because, you know, we know Alien 3, he didn't have any real control. So I'm not going to count Alien 3. Watch that movie again after I've said this. When Mills and Somerset don't really know each other, almost all the shots are wide, two shots. They're very wide. They're distant shots. As they become friends, the camera gets tighter and tighter on them and the shots are much closer and they're in much closer proximity. And then at the end, when there's a rift between them, they're standing apart and it's a super wide shot. Fincher is using the camera to show you the emotions you're supposed to see. That's a true filmmaker. That's something that, that somebody like, like Marcus Nispel will never understand. William Peter Blatty does the same thing on Exorcist 3. It's a little harder to tell on that because of the studio meddling and the cuts. Look at the camera angles. When when a character is is feeling alone, it's an upwards shot that's showing him in a, with no one around them. When they're completely overwhelmed, you'll notice that the camera is very tight on them, like they're being compressed. That's called film language. 
a horror movie needs to know film language to be effective. Unfortunately, most don't. That is a real thing, absolutely. And it's the difference between uh, a generic-looking movie and like a Fulci movie or an Argento or Fincher film, people that really know how to use the camera. Even uh, guys like uh, Cecil brought up uh, Only God Forgives, uh, Nicholas Reffin. That man really knows where to point the camera, how to use color, what angles to use, how to introduce a character, uh, how to have characters interact in front of the camera, what angles to use. He's going to be making a horror film soon, and I'm really looking forward to that. And it is. It's absolutely important. Everything you said about Seven, the way the shots are staged when they're, you know, becoming friends and then when when that uh, when, when their relationship gets kind of shaken up or when they're first getting to know each other, all of it tells a story through the lens. And you you have to do that. You can't just point at an actor and tell them to, you know, recite their lines. Everything has a has a step as a step by step process to making it go from a you know mediocre, generic Marcus Nispel film to to something awesome like a like a david fincher film or or one of you know argento's 70s and 80s movies and especially fulci and guys like nick reffin and and even like michael bay when he really gives a shit like something like uh something like pain and gain is is gorgeous and the use of the angles and then the way you know each shot tells uh tells the story along with the dialogue and what the the character Michael Bay is a very underrated filmmaker. Yes, Mm -hmm. some of his movies are terrible. He is a terrific filmmaker. Watch the film language of his movies. He doesn't have random camera angles or random shots. Everything in a Michael Bay movie is chosen but for that angle or that camera movement for a very specific purpose. He Mm -hmm. is a filmmaker. Absolutely. Tends to pick really terrible scripts sometimes. But Michael <laughs> Bay gets a lot of crap for being bad. He is not. I mean, Marcus Nispel is bad. Michael Bay is an actual filmmaker. Guys like James Cameron are, are the difference, uh, you know, between a Marcus Nispel or a, or some other generic filmmaker. You're absolutely right about that. It's not pompous. There is such thing as film language. And the, the filmmakers that stand out, those are the ones that you notice because their movies are just a cut above everything else because they're they're doing it right and they know what they're doing and they clearly love what they're doing. Definitely. Uh, Cause I get really irritated. I mean, I understand people don't, a lot of people don't necessarily like Michael Bay's um, more recent movies. I mean, pretty much he was making movies that people didn't hate up until transformers. And then all of a sudden, yeah. you know, he became the, the poster child for, for everything that's bad. In movies. Honestly, for Michael Bay, the only movies of his, I do hate are all the transformers movies. The Transformers movies kind of became like paycheck movies. It was like, all right, well, I can do these movies and there's a lot of CGI and explosions. And uh, he can he basically has carte blanche from a technical perspective. They're still technically well-made movies. I mean, the camera Mm -hmm. angles are good. There are uh, I mean, it's CGI overload, but I mean, there are really good effects. There's good set pieces. It's just that the stories are absolute garbage that's the major problem with them and and you know and they've just put in like jive talking robots and stuff and all that nonsense but uh yeah he gets lumped in with with bad filmmakers and doesn't deserve it then another one who always gets lumped in and it infuriates me is m night i think that if you were to look at his movies from a technical perspective even the quote-unquote bad movies it's so hack I get so many people that that type in Shamalama Ding Dong. I'm like, but, okay, but you Cecil. can call you can call him that if you if you even know where where the insult is coming from. Look, I mean, the look, majority look at a movie like Signs. Right. Signs is so much atmosphere that mm-hmm. has. I'm gonna get to jump scares in a minute to end the show out. There are legitimate jump scares in that movie that sent goosebumps up my arms and made me jump. Oh, That's yeah. hard to do. Because jump scares, the thing is, what what I people don't seem to get is I am not against jump scares. I'm against cheap jump scares. You have the to have the reflection in the TV. Mm-hmm. That is a genuine "what the f- just happened" moment, mm-hmm. isn't it? And and the the knife under the door was a, was a really good like our oh crap you know the, the like, leg in the cornfield. Yeah, little things like that really really are creepy. And the thing is. M. Knight and whoever he ends up using uh, for DOP, they know how to stage a shot. They they create the right atmosphere that the movie requires. They add the right amount of visuals. They don't over overly color correct the thing. And he crafts 
movies. You got guys like John Moore. You got guys like Samuel Bayer. You got guys like uh, Marcus Nispel who basically make really shiny garbage. The biggest one of those is Peter Berg. Tries to be Michael Bay without understanding why Michael Bay works. Yeah, look at, from a technical perspective, look at Battleship and then look at Transformers. And you'll see <laughs> the difference. It's like, even though I don't like the Transformers movies, I can say that they're well made. They're but, just terrible stories. Battleship fails on every level. It's it's overly edited. It's terrible camera angles. It's yeah. It but, just but he's stinks. trying to be Michael Bay. That movie feels like 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 a Michael Bay clone without understanding why Michael Bay movies are Michael Bay movies. But the, but I'm saying that to to make it even more like Michael Bay, they to it's like it had. I mean, I think they they probably even I don't know who the effects team was that worked on it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was you know whoever does his effects. It look, it, they the, look exactly the same. Yeah. They looked exactly the same, yeah. and it was the same color correction. It was the same everything. It was just awful. And I've gotten people that are like, oh, you know, uh, Battleship is, is a good, bad movie. And I'm like, no, Battleship is a bad, bad movie. Battleship is is just un- it's laughable and it's unwatchable. But now let, let's end the show talking about what I think is the biggest bane. And I'm going to lump these two things together because they do go together. The biggest bane to horror movies, it's not always been a modern thing, but the mo- it's been so overused in modern times. And that is quick cuts and jump scares. And I think those go together because the only way you get a jump scare is using a quick cut. But then at the same time, look at those movies we talked about with atmosphere and tone. Those all had long shots, moody shots, not a cut every four seconds like a modern horror film. That's how you get jump scares. When you're constantly cutting the camera, I hear the directors think that they're smart and they're like, yeah, because I keep you off kilter because you never know what we're going to cut to. And I'm like, you're really a moron, aren't you? It's like the points in the later 90s and earlier 2000s, it was really starting to get ridiculous. I believe the one of the first examples of just horrible, bad jump cuts and too many, like too many cuts and just too many jump scares was that one. It was the I think it was the House on Haunted Hill remake. No, 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 no. The House on Haunted Hill remake was good. You're thinking mm-hmm. of 13 Ghosts. Yes, 13 yes. Ghosts. 13 Ghosts, given its runtime, has the most edits of any movie ever. I, I mean, I don't think I don't think four to six seconds go by in that movie without a cut to something. They yeah. spent all this money on these gorgeous-looking ghosts, and you wouldn't know it because you can't fucking see them. Yeah. And it's really something that uh, it is the bane of especially horror, because what makes um, horror work, what makes uh, something scary is like, like you said, if you, if you have, you know, like a long shot of something, a long pan and then something scary happens or, or you see something off in the corner, uh, the right amount of the, the right kind of music, uh, the right sort of buildup. Uh, a lot of what makes a, a horror movie scary is the buildup and how you use that buildup. And, and a lot of filmmakers have no clue how to do that and um it's movies like 13 ghosts that are a good example of that and, and just a lot of the the marcus nispel you know the the platinum dunes uh horror remakes and, and stuff like that it's it's really just they they pale they, they um they absolutely have no comparison to to like you know a lot of the a lot of the good stuff a lot of the great slow burn stuff and and luckily the the ones i pointed out there are some some ones that still utilize um a long shot something that really does get built up like uh you know anybody listening that hasn't seen the baba duke or it follows yet do yourself a favor and check that out if you're into the the old school slower burn stuff like like the fog or or the exorcist because there are still film filmmakers that that are doing this the the slow burn style even even nick reffin uh only god forgives could you could sort of consider that as a as a horror movie because it does have a lot of horrific elements to it these are movies and filmmakers that that get it right and know how to do it and aren't overusing the um 
you know, the abundance of technology that we have now. I mean, yes, it is. It's a lot easier to edit now and it's a lot easier to to use music and you don't have to to go frame by frame with film reels or anything anymore. But that doesn't mean that you absolutely bullet hole your movie with with jump cuts and all this shit because you're completely diminishing any atmosphere that it had any potential to have. And that's that's something that um, I mean, a lot of jump cuts can, and quick edits could possibly work in certain action movies. Best jump scares in film history both relied on long uninterrupted shots i'm thinking the shot of the alien on the narcosis in alien because you think it's over you think the alien was destroyed on the nostromo ripley's wearing her 70s panties and she's flipping all the switches and she's got jones in hypersleep the camera pans past the alien who's hiding in the background and you don't see, I mean, you don't notice it and it stays on Ripley. And then when its hand comes out, you jump through the goddamn ceiling. It, the atmosphere was built up. And then the other, come on, Exorcist three, the hallway scene in the hospital, arguably the greatest jump scare in movie history, long shot down a hallway. Nothing's moving. You see the nurse is going around doing her thing. Security guard gets up and leaves. She goes into, you know, this camera is slowly pushing in. So slow you almost don't even notice that the camera's pushing in. Because the shot's almost three minutes long. So she goes into a linen closet, which she has to use her key for, turns on the light, does something in there, comes back out, turns the light off, locks the door, turns around, and the closet opens and a guy comes out and cuts her head off. And it's so fast, and you were lulled into such a false sense of security by how long this shot was, you kept going... And now something's going to happen. Okay, no, it didn't. And now something's going to... And by the time it does, that is the most effective jump scare ever. And that takes a filmmaker mm -hmm. like William Peter Blatty to accomplish. Yeah, I'll go one... Uh, there's another one in Alien. It is when uh, Tom Skerritt is down... Well, when he's in, in the... Because you can oh, see God. the alien illuminated with the flamethrower, but he doesn't. Right, and then yeah. it, it jumps out. Fantastic. That's great. And I'll go one with a recent movie... There is a phenomenal jump scare, a legitimate jump scare in the original Sinister, which is another reason why I'm so annoyed by the jump by the phony jump scare at the end when the girl is pushing the lawnmower and it goes on for too long. It's going and you're like, OK, OK, something's going to happen. OK, something's going to happen. Well, wait, now nothing's going to happen. And then, bam right as you start to kind of like be like all right nothing's gonna happen that's when the lawnmower like a person comes out of the darkness and it runs them over and you jump through the freaking ceiling it is perfectly timed and that is another case of somebody who gets horror somebody who knows how to build <laughs> the right amount of tension for the scene and to creep you the hell out that was like perfect and that's why i love the original movie so much it is the kind of movie that we we just don't get very often a lot of the film of the genuine filmmakers that we have nowadays are the ones that are making these really small films and the you know big budget director you know the big budget uh, you know fifty hundred million dollar movies they keep going to like Michael Bay's buddies you know who are not as talented as Michael Bay that's why I get annoyed with the Platinum Dunes things is they're hiring all these guys who used to be music video directors now there are some music video directors that have gone on to be very good Michael regular Bay used directors to be a music video director. Michael Bay used to be a music mm -hmm. video director which is why he started Platinum Dunes to kind of give his buddies a shot but the problem is you get you know we keep going back to him you keep getting the Marcus Nispels the Samuel Bears the guys who they they know how to make something shiny it's for a four minute Rihanna video, not for a 90 to two hour, uh, 90 minute to two hour movie because, because Marcus Nispel and Samuel Bear and John Moore, they, they know somebody and they keep getting financing. I mean, John Moore is the one that bothers the hell out of me. He keeps failing. His movies are like at least Bay's movies. They, they might not be, you know, the, the Transformers movies might not be the greatest thing in the world, but they continuously make bank. The John Moore's movies continuously fail they continuously flop and he keeps getting bigger and bigger properties all the way up to and including die hard how does a guy who made four financial failures in a row get die hard only in hollywood can you fail upwards if we want to be uncomfortable with cecil which we always are since he's generally wrong about everything <laughs> where, where would we see him be wrong <laughs> uh you could be uncomfortable with me over at escapistmagazine.com 
goodbadflicks.com. Uh, YouTube, you can find me as Trachenberg on there because uh, when I opened the channel, it was years before I started Good Bad Flicks. And unfortunately, they won't let me change it because YouTube sucks. And then uh, Twitter, Good Bad Flicks, uh, Facebook, Good Bad Flicks, all, uh, all those wonderful places. Follow me. And, you know, I had somebody who contacted me the other day that says he's been listening to me on uh, on Radio Drum for years and had no idea that I had a YouTube channel. That happens, I guess. <laughs> I was like, wow, I guess I'm not plugging enough. Well, Peter likes to plug away. Where would people see him do that? You can see me uh, plugging everything and, and anything. Just, just lots, so many plugs uh, on uh, YouTube, Cinemasticus, Twitter at Cinematica, Facebook, the Cinemasticus. And uh, where you can see me, see me get plugged. Um, where you can uh, see everybody just sharing everybody's content and trying to have a good time. You can see me at uh, 1201 Beyond. Dot com. Hopefully uh, some uh, Cinemasticus shirts will be up there uh, pretty soon once the site gets uh, updated. And uh, yeah, pretty much it. And 1201beyond.com is where I can be seed. Yes, that's what I said. You can also contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Now remember, guys, stop with the jump cuts, stop with the boost scares. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Try to be a cut above, blah, blah, blah. Have a good night.
1201 Beyond Production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.